and Galatians 2. We said last week that this letter of Galatians is a bit like the situation where you have two people speaking to you who are giving you the opposite advice. Like when you're driving in the car and somebody is saying to you, we have to turn right up ahead. And somebody else is saying to you, no, 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 we have to turn left up ahead. And you have these two voices saying the opposite things and you have to choose between them. That's a good picture of the situation in Galatia. These fledgling little churches had been planted by the Apostle Paul, but um, after he, he had moved on to work and teach elsewhere, some other teachers had moved in with a different message. And as we've looked at the letter, we have called these people um, the Judaizers or the legalists. We'll see why. And their influence was growing. The Galatians were starting to listen to this new message. And Paul heard about it. And so in great distress, he writes this letter to say, no, 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 you, it, it's me you should be listening to. And he calls them back. So there are these two voices. And um, last week, we saw Paul, address it, um, Paul addressing the issue of credibility, the sources of these two messages. He described his own position as an apostle, one of... Uh, one of the Lord Jesus's specifically appointed spokesmen. He's saying that he got his message, not from any human source, but straight from God. It's a bit like um, somebody in the car, in that analogy, saying, look, what I'm saying is straight off the AA root finder. And Paul also said that, as well as being an apostle, having got his message from God, all the other apostles also backed up what he was saying. So it's not just that the person has it off AA Root Finder. They got exactly the same thing in Google Maps. That was Paul's point last week. I'm the one you should be listening to here. I, my message comes from God. It is reliable. But this week, he's not so much talking about where his message comes from, as opposed to this other one, this alternative message, but what the messages actually are. And this is where we get into the meat of the letter. Paul begins to lay one message and the other message and say, let's look at these side by side, these two great arguments in Galatians. In a few minutes, what we're going to do is have a look through the verses that Sheila read. They're not easy verses. There are some bits in there that really make you scratch your head at first. Hopefully, we'll understand them. But just before we do that, before we walk through them, what I'd like to do is try to lay out the two messages a bit more systematically from Galatians what are the two sides of the argument? What's Paul's message as opposed to these other people's message? Let, let, let's lay them out. So on the service sheets, I've tried to do that. And I've tried to use the language of Paul from verse 16 of our passage. Verse 16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. That's one, one option, one message. But through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the other alternative message. That's Paul's message. Both of the messages are answers to, um, to the question of how a person is justified. That is, how they are right with God, accepted by him in life and for eternity. And the first answer is that we are justified by works of the law. That's what the new teachers were saying. That if God is going to accept us, and if he's going to keep on accepting us, being pleased with us in our lives, that is something we are going to have to earn. We need to work for him by obeying some kind of a law that God has laid down. And in particular, we call them 
the Judaizers because these new teachers in Galatia were saying that it was the Jewish, the Old Testament law that people would have to keep in order to be acceptable to God. So things like circumcision and the festivals and the food laws and laws about ceremonial cleanliness. If you want to be one of God's people, then what you need are works of the law. Now, I said before that... um, in spite of how it might appear, the message of the Judaizers is more than ancient history. You know, probably these particular laws are not very attractive or widespread in our day. But the idea that there are laws by which we can earn our way to God is very attractive and very widespread. So in the world, uh, you have 1.5 billion Muslims trying to keep the five pillars trying to say the right prayers and fast and give alms, trying to earn their way to God. Or or 1.2 billion members of the Roman Catholic Church seeking to be justified through penance and baptism and confession and attending Mass. Another billion people who are Hindus trying to make the right offerings and live the right kind of life that will earn the favor of the gods. Now, you can add it up. That's a lot of billions, (laughs) And I'm not knocking that. I'm sure a lot of those people have thought long and hard about what it is that they believe. And I'm not saying that all those beliefs boil down to the same thing, because I know that's not true. But what I'm saying is this. There is clearly something very deep down in our human thinking that wants to make a link between how God views us and what we do for him. Does that make sense? Works of law. This approach is very much ingrained in our human thinking. This is not just ancient history. And it's not, just a, it's not a million miles away from us either. People like us in churches like this are no less prone to thinking, uh, or at least living, in a way that shows that it, they believe that it's works of law that matter to God. Even if we know that's not what the Bible says. And even if we know that in in theory that's not what we're meant to believe, in practice it's very often how we live. when When we feel bad about something we've done, why does that make us reluctant to pray? Because secretly we think that I've broken the rules, God won't accept me. Why do we think that somebody whose life is kind of a bit crazy, a bit messy, is kind of further away from becoming a Christian than somebody whose life is more ordinary? More, sorry, more orderly. Because we secretly believe that it's going to be harder for that person to start to keep the rules, which at some level is what matters. Why do we get really puffed up with pride when there's no flagrant, obvious moral issues in our own lives? Because we feel pretty good that we are keeping the rules, at least the big ones. The first way of approaching God that this letter shows us, of trying to come to him through works of law, it appeals very much. It's intuitive. It keeps me in control. It keeps me at the center. It makes Christianity something that I am doing for God. That's the first option. But really, this letter was written to say no no to all of that. And um, have a look at verse 16, and you can see that. <clears throat> Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. 
And just in case we missed it the first time, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul is saying no to works of the law. And instead he is saying yes to faith in Christ. That is the alternative message, the message that he said came from Jesus and that Paul is speaking up for here. You can either work for God to earn his favor or else you can receive acceptance and pardon as a free gift from Jesus by trusting in him. Now let me try to illustrate the contrast. And uh, um, I thought about maybe not doing this, but um, I hope you won't find that this is patronizing or childish. I think it really is the clearest way I have of explaining this. So all of us by nature are unrighteous. This is uh, because of how we live, principally because of how we treat God, very ungrateful. We push him out of our lives. We are unrighteous. We're not fit for God's presence. And works of law means I try to kind of clean, clean myself up or to, to put better works over the top of it. I try to do what he wants me to do. But Paul says that will not work. You can't clean yourself up. You can't be righteous that way. You can't be justified through works of the law. What will work is putting your trust in Jesus and being united with him in a way that means what's yours become his, uh, becomes his and what's his becomes yours. So I put my trust in Jesus and on the cross, he bears my unrighteousness laid on Jesus on the cross. And in return, I receive his perfect righteousness. So I'm spotless in God's sight and acceptable to him, not because of things I've done, but because of Jesus. And this change happens when I'm united with Jesus by faith, when I put my trust in him. I share in his death and I share in his life. That is how justification works. And and when that happens, practically, now that I've received this righteousness from Jesus, do I then just go on sinning because Jesus has picked up the tab? No, because I'm united with Jesus in a way that makes me righteous, but also means that his power is at work within me. He is changing me. He starts to change the way I think and feel and speak and live. And so I will start to do good things. I will start to comply with the teaching that God has given. But what's different is the order. Because the righteous acts, the righteous life I live, is not me trying to earn acceptance with God, but rather it's a consequence of the acceptance that I have received when I'm united with Jesus by faith. And that's why outwardly, the difference between somebody who, who is living by works of law in a church like this or somebody who is living through faith in Christ, it can be quite a subtle difference because both of those people will be doing a lot of the same things. They'll be trying to resist temptation. They'll be trying to uh, serve and love others. They'll be trying to read the Bible and pray. Outwardly, it looks the same, but inwardly, there's a world of a difference. Because one of those people is striving to earn God's favor, whereas the other person knows they already have received God's favor by being joined with Jesus. 
one of those people is living under the burden of, Christ, uh, of um, um, Christianity being something I am doing for God, whereas the other person is enjoying the freedom of being righteous in Jesus and him being at work within me, changing me. So this is the choice that the Galatians face. They must relate to God either through works of the law or faith in Christ. And that's the choice that we face too. There isn't a person in here this evening for whom this is all just theoretical because one day we will die, we will stand before God and at that point the question will be, why should I accept you? And our answer will be either because I kept this law, that law, or because I am united with Jesus and righteous in him. And Paul says only one of those answers is going to work on that final day. And also in the meantime, though, all of us will live either under the burden of trying to earn our way to God or else in the freedom of receiving from Jesus. What will it be for you? What will it be for you? I'm going to put my jumper back on so you can't see my fat tummy as much. I hope that's a helpful overview of these two messages that are competing for the Galatians' hearts and for ours. Paul is writing to call them back from works of law to faith in Christ. Now, let's see how how he is doing that in the verses that are before us this evening. We can split the passage into two bits. So first, in verses 11 to 16, we have um, Peter's mistake and Paul's response. And then in verses 17 to 21, we have an objection from the Judaizers that Paul expresses and then responds to. So starting off, uh, Paul describes how Peter, the, the apostle Peter, the word um, Cephas there, that that's just the Aramaic form of the Greek name Peter. When Peter was in Antioch, he hypocritically stopped eating with Gentile Christians, that is those who were not from a Jewish background. In Jewish culture, to eat with somebody is a sign that you accept them. And that's why normally Jewish people wouldn't eat with Gentiles because they saw them as, as unclean. They were uncircumcised outsiders. They wouldn't have kept the food laws and the cleanliness laws. The, the outsiders, not part of God's people. They would have been seen as sinners, not in the sense that they had done specific things wrong, but they're just in that outsider category of being sinners, the great unwashed, the great uncircumcised, not God's people. And that's why it was such a revolution for Peter. You can read about it in Acts chapter 10, when the the word, the message went out, reached the Gentiles, and they believed in Jesus and God He confirmed that they really had believed and had become his people. And so from that point, Peter had been gladly eating with Gentile brothers, for that is what they had become. But then some people who Paul calls certain men from James started to put pressure on Peter to stop eating with the Gentiles. These people seem to have shared the Judaizers' view that as well as trusting in Jesus, or perhaps instead of trusting in Jesus, these Gentiles should have been keeping the Jewish ceremonial law in order to be fully accepted as God's people. They were obviously claiming some kind of a link with James, the apostle in in Jerusalem, although Paul specifically dealt with that last week and said that James had backed up his message of 
faith alone being what justifies a person. No works required, so it's probable that this was a spurious link these people were claiming. He calls them the circumcision party, which I always think it doesn't sound like a very sun, a very fun sort of a party. Um, but these people are putting pressure on Peter to stop outraging Jewish sensibilities by mixing so freely with the Gentile sinners. And for a time, the Apostle Peter and Barnabas and some of the others, <clears throat> they went along with it. They gave in to the pressure. Verse 12, we see that Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. But Paul, Paul was having none of it. And in, in verse 14, we see the start of his response. He publicly accused Peter of hypocrisy. To borrow an American phrase, he, he pointed out how Peter had flip-flopped on the issue of keeping the ceremonial laws. He himself had stopped obeying them. He, he was living like a Gentile. But now he was insisting that uh, others must keep those laws. And then Paul explains how he reasoned with Peter, how he called him back into living in line with the gospel. Have a look down, please, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, Peter, you and I are Jews, but we know, we know, don't we, Peter, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. We know that, Peter, don't we? That's our shared theology. And it's also our shared experience, he says in verse 16. We, we also believed. It wasn't that we worked. It wasn't anything we obeyed that earned God's favor. We believed. We were saved by Christ alone. We owe it all to him. And the implication is, therefore, come on, Peter, what are you doing? Why are you excluding people that God has included? That's how Paul calls Peter back to living in line with the gospel. Now, why does this matter to us? Well, it matters, firstly, reinforcing the point from last week, this matters for us because it's important that all of the apostles agreed about what the gospel was. These men were the appointed, authorized spokesmen of Jesus. And so if they were saying different things, heaven help us. What are we to believe? These are our reliable sources. But the point here is that there really was no disagreement about what the gospel was. Paul and Peter always believed the same thing. It's just that Peter didn't live in line with it for a time. He came under pressure. And, you know, the apostles had this authority, but it didn't make them perfect people. They were still weak human beings, and for a time, Peter gave in, and he did what these people were wanting him to, and Paul had to call him back from that. But he didn't change the gospel. Paul is, is persuading us in that way. That, that there's only one gospel, only one gospel. That's, that really matters in Galatians. He's appealing to our heads again. There's only one gospel. But he's also appealing to our hearts, I think, showing us not only the truth of the gospel, but also its goodness. Because this little section, we get a window into how a message of free grace leads to people and churches of free grace. God, God accepts those who offend him and who are not like him. That's how God has treated us. And so that's how we should treat others. Paul was reminding Peter here, wasn't he, not to put up a barrier that God had taken down. 
People might not be like us. They might not share our background or our, our sensibilities. They might not live in a way that we feel particularly um, at home with. They might do things that we wouldn't do. But through faith in Jesus, we can be all one. For me, I look back very fondly on the class that I was in on the Cornhill training course in Glasgow when I was through there for that. There were people there from all around the world. There were some men on the course who had become Christians in prison. There were people there with Glasgow accents that I could barely understand. And then there was me and there was a guy called Rupert um, who, well, uh, yeah, Rupert. Sorry, I thought that would speak for itself. But as a team, we were very much united, aware that we're all equal in Christ, all the same, serving side by side. God has included all sorts of people, and and therefore so should we, in our church, in our social circles. I think this is already a real strength of Chalmers Church, but let's, let's keep on with that. Because this is where it comes from, the gospel of free grace makes us people of free grace. It's very attractive what Paul is talking about. Whereas legalists will put up the barriers and say, oh, you don't keep the rules, you don't fit, you're out, you're in, you're out, because that's how they think um, the Lord is. But a message of free grace will make us a people of free grace. So that's the first part of the passage. Uh, Paul is reminding, he was reminding Peter that it's faith in Christ and faith alone that makes a person right with God. And if that's true, we need to live in line with it. But then we get to verse 17. And this is where, if on an airplane, you know how the, the fasten seatbelts sign lights up. I think this is where this happens. It starts to get a wee bit complicated now. He, I think um, what Paul is doing is he's raising an objection that the Judaizers have raised against him. Um, in, in eating with the Gentile believers, Paul and Peter and the others had themselves become like the Gentiles. They weren't keeping all the rules and the traditions. And so the Judaizers seem to be saying something a bit like this. With your message, Paul, you've become just as bad as the unclean Gentile sinners. That's the outcome of your gospel. All these Jewish believers have been drawn into being sinners now. So haven't you made Christ a servant of sin? That makes sense. The Judaizers were saying that Paul's message was, in Jesus' name, encouraging Jewish Christians to break God's law and so become sinners. But Paul won't have it for a minute. His response in verse 18 is to say, effectively, um, well, what you think of as a sinner... And what God thinks of as sin seems to be rather different things here. You think it's all about keeping the laws, but you're wrong. What you're calling sin, it's not sin at all. As Jesus said, those ceremonial laws, they don't apply anymore. They've served their purpose in pointing forward to me. They don't apply anymore. So it's not sin to be a Gentile sinner anymore and not keep the food laws or the festivals not be circumcised but what is sin is to ignore what god says about his grace and to rebuild ceremonial law as a way of getting right with him 
I think that's what verse 18 means. Paul, who had been a Pharisee, he had been well into his rule keeping. He had torn that all down as a way of getting right with God. He hadn't, he hadn't um, torn down God's law, the law of Moses, that is, or the Old Testament. He hadn't torn that down. But what he had torn down was a misunderstanding of that law that meant that it was being used as a way of earning his favor. That's a bit complicated because law, as we'll see in the coming weeks, law, um, that word is used in slightly different senses in the letter. Um, We don't particularly need to worry about that now. And I really don't need to worry about it because Sam is preaching for the next few weeks and he can explain it. Um, But God's law, in the sense of the Old Testament, doesn't teach law as a way of getting right with God. So the Judaizers, they don't represent God's law, the law of Moses. They represent a twisting of it. And I think that's what verse 19 means. That it's saying through the law, as in through reading God's Old Testament law, which is really all about God's grace, Paul had died to the principle of earning favor through law keeping. And then verse 20, we come to it again. And it blows the whole thing wide open. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Judaizers could not conceive of a religion without rules. I need to know what the rules are so that I can earn my way to God. But Paul says that isn't how it works. Being a Christian is something that goes way beyond having rules to follow. Being a Christian means being united with Jesus. He doesn't give me a list of rules to follow. He takes over my life. Looking at that verse, try and see the change of I that comes halfway through it. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have died, but because Christ lives in me, there is a new I, a whole new person who lives by faith in Jesus. Being a Christian is so much bigger than keeping this rule or that rule. It means you become a whole new person with Christ living in you changing your heart, changing the way you feel, what you want, the way that you act in life. And that's why Christ is not a servant of sin. Partly because the ceremonial infractions that the Judaizers were calling sin are not sin at all. It is not sin to be a sinner if, you, if what you mean by that is being uncircumcised. But even if you do mean something, even more than that, even if you do mean something that is genuinely wrong and sinful... Jesus' grace does not promote that in any way, but neither does it merely legislate against it. Instead, Jesus gets inside of us to bring about a change. Saving grace looks like it would promote sin. Like, Jesus pays the tab so I can do what I like. Saving grace looks like it would promote sin. But what Paul is showing here is that saving grace 
goes hand in hand with changing grace through our union with Christ, the power of his spirit at work within us. Which leads us at verse 21 as we finish. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He's in fighting mood again. He says, you Judaizers, you're so keen to take up Jesus's cause. You're so keen to protect him from me. You say that this message of grace means he excuses sin. But let me tell you what your message makes of Jesus. Nothing. According to you, his death was a waste of time because who needs a savior when you can earn your own way back to God? Someone is nullifying the grace of God here, but it isn't me, says Paul. Now, what does this mean for all of us this week? This week, do not work to earn God's favor, but trust in Jesus to receive it. And if you have already trusted, then understand and start to live the reality that you are now united with him and a completely new person. To live as a Christian this week is so much better, sorry, so much bigger than trying to keep the rules. It means learning to have that mindset that you are now a new I, occupied by Jesus, led and ruled and changed by him. Let me pray. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Lord, that's not how we're used to thinking about our lives. We're so used to thinking about what I am doing and Christianity being my project that I am doing. Lord, teach us to see instead that Christ lives in us. And so help us this week to embrace the change that he is bringing and to go where he leads us. We pray in his name. Amen.